This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I've not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range, then visit their website that can be found in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, welcome to Into the Wild. This is your weekly podcast all about wildlife conservation and nature and um, I guess that's only right for me to say I'm your host Ryan Dalton, welcome to the show. Now, we've started to do our intros, or my intros, to the shows remotely, whether I'm going for a walk around Highgate Woods, Hampstead Heath, um, just to spice things up and be a bit different. Um, But this time, as you can probably tell by the noise surrounding me, I'm in a car I am driving... What region is this? This is the Orongo region. Orongo. I'm in the Orongo region of Namibia. Southern Africa. I can see... No, I can't see them. No, I can see them now. Spit, is that Spitzkopper over there? Yeah, it's Yeah. So I can see Spitzkopper, which is beautiful mountains in Namibia. Absolutely beautiful formations. So, yes, I am in Southern Africa, in Namibia. I'm in the car with... Maxi Lewis, CEO of Naxo. I think my podcast listeners know who you are by now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to introduce you. Um, we've just come away from Swakamund, which is a coastal town, a very cold coastal town, right on the Atlantic. Big waves, strong wind, salty air. Um, but amazingly, you have these sand dunes because it's in the desert, right? So we're in the semi-desert now, but as you as you drive in the opposite direction that what we're driving at the moment, it very slowly starts to change and you, st- you don't even notice it. The scrub just almost like fades away and then before you know it, you're just in white sand desert and then in the distance you can see these opaque sand dunes. And what we did today is we got up, we had some breakfast and then we got in the car and we drove along these sand dunes and just watched uh, the ocean. And I did a bit of a climb up the sand dunes to see the other side and see the desert. And it was surreal. I've never seen anything like that. It was absolutely stunning. and. I've had an absolutely incredible trip. So we started in Windhoek, um, where we premiered Beyond the Trigger, um, which was just an absolutely beautiful evening. Um, lots of happy faces. Uh, it was lovely to see a group of people in Namibia watching the film um, and just be happy to watch it and their story be told. It was, it was a real privilege for me. And then we headed out into the bush. Um, we went up to Korikas for World Rhino Day. Um, there was a big World Rhino Day event there with the local community where I spoke with some um, people that work for Save the Rhino Trust and the Namibian Nature Foundation. And then we had an overnight at a beautiful lodge and then we had our nice drive yesterday where we stopped at Angu Conservancy where I was very privileged to be able to sit in on a conservancy meeting and got asked questions myself, which I was quite nervous for at first, but they were very good questions. Um, and then I interviewed the conservancy manager, the newly appointed conservancy manager, uh, Neville Hendricks. Anyway, this is all about what I'm doing now. Um, that episode will be out in the future, but at the moment I'm here to introduce this week's episode. Um, now, 
it's going to feel very weird talking about this animal as I drive through <laughs> Southern Africa. But this week's episode, I am joined by hedgehog enthusiast and expert Hugh Warwick. And I can't believe it's taken me so long to get Hugh on the show. A lot of the, a lot of you out there will know Hugh as Hedgehog Hugh on um, uh, Twitter and Instagram. But Hugh is absolutely passionate about hedgehogs. And as we are in the UK as well, uh, the species has had a incredibly hard you know 20 or 30 years with declines up in the 90 percent and actually where they're doing better is in the urban areas so it was lovely to have Hugh on to learn about this animal a bit more to learn about the complexity of an animal that maybe we look at in quite a simple mindset so this episode is all about hedgehogs so strap yourself in for a very peaceful episode <laughs> this is hedgehogs with Hugh Warwick Hugh, welcome to Into the Wild. It's lovely to find, I've seen you on social media so much over the last two years of doing this show, and you're finally here. Welcome to Into the Wild. How are you? I'm doing all right. And uh, yes, I'm social media. I've been hiding in my shed. And uh, that's, that's sort of the, um, that's kind of what I do now is I hide in my shed and then listen to the Tay programme, get grumpy, swear at people on Twitter, uh, and then try and write books. That's kind yeah. of it. Swearing that's... on people on Twitter is essential <laughs> for the creative mind. <laughs> for your mind. Um, how's your day been? Um, uh, where are we? We're Monday. So how's your weekend as well? Monday. Well, weekend was good. We did three or four days holiday down in Devon and uh, going off staying with with Derek Gow rewilding Coombshead his mm. amazing sort of project glamping thing so he lets me pull up a van on there and nice. me and my wife had a, a few days there going off seeing the beavers listening to the wild cats howling as we sat around a fire drinking wine with him amazing straight from there to a beach and then and this is the idea of the barter holiday so <laughs> Basically, my wife and myself do bits and pieces for mm. Derek. Yeah, she does some filming for him, and I've promoted his work. And so we get to camp at his place for for, for free. And then we went straight from there to one of the poshest hotels in the world, <laughs> uh, the Royal Crescent Hotel in Bath. Oh, and um, and they owed me a night in a suite, complete with access to the spa. Why? Why? Why did they owe you that? I did a lecture for them, and um, so they did a fundraiser for the British Hedgehog nice. Preservation Society, and they said, look, we can pay you a fee, but then that would come out of the money that goes to the Hedgehog Society, or have a room. Okay. 100% oh, a well, room. The bed is bigger than my bedroom. <laughs> the be and it's just... And I was trying to work out this. So you're going to ask bed, me if I've slept in a bed. I have slept in a bed. <laughs> okay, But the, the size of this bed left me thinking that it's designed for two purposes, mm. okay? For couples who don't like each other very much, or for couples who want to bring friends, because I can see no <laughs> other purpose for having a bed quite so enormous. I was also very comfortable. Uh, anyway, it was lovely. Well, I was going to say, you, so, you, you, you both stayed there, so which one was it? Ah, uh, well, now there's a question I can't possibly answer. However, <laughs> however, me and my friends hedgehogs. had a great time. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, there's enough pricks in this story anyway, so that's... What a great start to the show. Um, right. Sorry, I, sorry, I haven't even talked about hedgehogs yet. Um, well, before we get onto that, um, so usually I ask uh, people at the beginning of the show is, you know, what do you love most about the natural world? But we've been doing this show, Hugh, now for two and a half years, and I feel like uh, we've had every important answer under the sun. So I'm going to change. You're going to have the, you're the first person to have this new question that every guest is going to have. And you've kind of you might have answered it a little bit already. But I was going to say, what has been your your top nature moment in the last seven days? Okay, now two. I'm going to get two yes. because tough. Um, so it was. <laughs> So I'm I'm a particular fan of rainforests. Yes. Um, but not tropical things because, you know, leeches and stuff. 
but the temperate rainforests. And Guy mm. Shrubsole has just yeah. written this amazing book, Britain's Lost Rainforests. And um, I was on Dartmoor and uh, um, a friend of mine um, guided me to, or gave me directions to a place near Hound's Tor and down, down, down into a valley. And it's the Becker Brook. Mm. And it's a whole sequence of little mini waterfalls and moss covered uh, rocks and lichen dripping trees. And I saw a dipper. And the whole thing was just absolutely just stunning. And the, the noise of, of one of those Dartmoor streams trickling over rocks is just anyway, magical. And, um, but I, that, so that is my sort of the big picture one. And the small one is um, I have over the years been taming robins. Um, I know it's a bird. I know it's a bird, so far, a bird. you said yeah. two birds. I know, I know. I'm sorry. Okay. But I've, I've tamed robins to come and feed from my hand. And um, earlier this year, I had a robin, a male, come and was taking uh, cheese from my fingertips. And I took a whole sequence of photographs, mm. which um, were just, I was just absolutely in the moment. Yeah. One two thousandth of a second of hovering uh, robin above my fingers. And um, he was taking cheese from me. And I knew it was a he because he was then flying up to another adult robin and they were begging and she was begging because courtship feeding is mm. a, a part of uh, a robin life. And uh, when you've got two birds which look the same, male and female, this is a good way of telling the difference through behaviour. And then after um, he'd gone through uh, the courtship and a little bit of time when there were, there were babies around, he was still coming for it. But then he buggered off. And I got back from Dartmoor and this morning I was coming down the garden to my shed and he was there and it had to be him because he landed exactly the same place that he'd always done. Yeah. And he was just basically going, hey, come on then. Come on, where's my Edam? Where, and, um, <laughs> no, no, organic mature cheddar, please. And um, it's, uh, and he was, um, so he began by only taking it from the arm of the chair in front of me. And then eventually, then my hand was next to the cheese and he took it from there. And then eventually he took it from my fingertips. Amazing. And it was just like, so yes, I've spent my entire life studying uh, mostly hedgehogs, obsessed with mammals. But I have oh, God. this moment with a robin, that moment of connection. And, and yeah. actually what this all comes down to are those moments of connection. It's very mm -hmm. easy to get a moment of connection with a hedgehog because of their absence of fight or flight response. But when it comes to something as flighty as a robin, getting those moments of connection is much harder fought. And anyway, we, we, we're back on track now. <laughs> no, but you're right. I think with, and you can, you can have that with any... Because I have the same with insects sometimes. You know, like when a butterfly lands on you or something, it's one of those things as well that they're so flighty and they're so hard to get near to get good pictures or just to, to watch. But when they land on, like randomly land on your arm, you're just like, oh, look at this, it's yeah. chosen me. Yeah. Utterly. And um, and these are those points of connection. So I, I mean, I do talks all over the country to you know, primary school groups all the way up to Women's Institute via mm. uh, you know, postgraduate research groups, depending basically I need cake or money or both, preferably. <laughs> both. Um, and um, and so and and that, but that's what you know, we're coming down to is trying to identify ways of making a connection. I've written an entire book about this. Where is it? Um, called the Beauty and the Beast. And, yes. and I went and met fifteen people, a bit like me. Um, yeah, you know, I, I met a robin, me and a and a a, a um, dragonfly, me and an otter, me and a dolphin, me and a you know, so fifteen of them. And um, so I, the thing is, right. It was really quite hard work because I was away a lot, meeting lots of people. And I had so much fun. Yeah. And there's a little part of me can't really say that because, you know, my wife was left home looking after both kids at the time. It was like thinking, oh, my God, this was so good. I want to write the sequel because – and then uh, – uh, um, but it was just those moments, those moments of meeting people who found a way of connecting with nature. Yeah. Um, and, and realizing this is the key to it. It was also an excuse to get another tattoo. <laughs> what, the whole book? The book was an excuse to get another tattoo, yeah. What was the tattoo? 
you've got to read the book. Oh, right. I can't okay. just... Oh, very, so okay. That's the punchline of the book. right there. <laughs> oh, yes, you see. Okay, I'll give you a, I'll give you a taster, is that the book begins with me getting my first and last ever tattoo, and that was of a hedgehog. Right, of course. Of course. Okay. Okay, now so we're back on find... track again. Yeah, yeah, you see what I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> so this is how this episode's going to go. Like We weave Sorry. away from hedgehogs and we come back. <laughs> yeah, Actually, yeah, yeah. Whilst, come back. whilst we're on hedgehogs, right, ladies and gentlemen, this is what we're talking about today. If I've got Hugh here, we are talking about hedgehogs. So it's no secret you're a fan, although the two animals you've spoken about so far are not hedgehogs, but you are a massive fan. And there was one behind, there is still one behind you, not a real one, obviously, but is it a wooden... Sculpted. That's a cardboard. That's cardboard. Yeah, that's, sorry, that's, yeah. yeah. It's all folding gorgeously. It's yeah, yeah. beautiful. Um, pointless for the listeners because they can't see it. But <laughs> you are a massive fan of the hedgehog. So my obvious question has to start with: I've got my reasons. Hugh, what are yours for loving hedgehogs? Yes. Um, well, to begin with, it was entirely pragmatic. Um, mm. I was doing my degree Leicester Polytechnic, and uh, there was an opportunity for a third-year project, the, the honours project, the opportunity to go off and do something interesting or to just do something which everyone had done every year forever. And uh, there was an opportunity to go off to North Ronaldsey, uh, which is the most northerly of the Orkney archipelago. And um, the bird warden up there, uh, the late um, Dr. Kevin Woodbridge, mm. who was also the GP, um, had noticed that that there was a, been an increasing number of hedgehogs on the island. Having they'd been imported, two of them had been imported by the uh, uh, postman um, back in 1974. By and the I went postman. Up in, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, the fact he was a postman isn't really relevant to the right. story. Sorry, I just uh, he, it was, um, but he was the postman. He was but, also the um, postman. But he would have also probably been the person who mowed the graveyard and the person who I don't know uh, guided the small, small island, in. small island community. Um, and um, so the two hedgehogs, either it was a pregnant female or, or, yeah. or a male and a female. And anyway, numbers increased. And as the hedgehog numbers increased, breeding success of ground nesting birds decreased. And the bird uh, observatory reckoned that there might be some sort of uh, connection with that. Mm. So I went up there in 1986 to count hedgehogs. And people would often say, so what, what, why were you doing that? And I have to sort of pause and look at them and go, you idiot, to find out how many there were. Um, that's the essence of ecology. How many are there to start with? And then you, then you can start from there. And so that was the beginning of it. It was going up there. And I went back to the island off my own back a few years later. And Dr. Pat Morris, the sort of godfather of the British hedgehog, he started sort of scientific hedgehog study back in the 60s. He got me doing some other work for him. I ended up radio tracking hedgehogs in Devon. And he introduced me to the then editor of the BBC Wildlife magazine, mm. uh, Ross Kidman-Cox, who is, is, is uh, one of the most amazing people People on the planet. And because of the two of them, I ended up doing what I'm doing now um, because she got me to write an article for the BBC Wildlife magazine. And I had no idea how to do that. She just said, just do it. So I did it. And that's it. Now I write books and talk a lot. <laughs> Isn't that great, though, that someone said, you can just do it. You just do it. Just, just go on, go and see what you can do. Actually, should I do it now? I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you the. So I do like two and a half hour long lectures on creative writing. Um, and I have to begin them with the uh, uh, say, say, actually, all I'm going to teach you is going to be in this sentence. The rest of it's flannel, okay? Um, and so what Roz did, uh, we walked around the place, radio, looking at the hedgehogs at radio tracking, chatting away. She said, "How? You know, write me a feature. And, and I go, well, I mean, how? And she said, well, it's quite straightforward, really. You know, you just spent the entire evening talking about what you're doing. It's yeah. interesting. So imagine you're in a pub with your friends and you're telling them what you're doing. Write it down. Yeah. And that's send it. it to me. And say, yeah, and that's it. So that's absolutely it. So so I spend, you know, hence I'm in my shed on my own because I spend an awful lot of time 
talking to myself, just trying to work out how to get from one idea to another idea. Mm. That's the, tr the trick of these things. Yeah. So going back to the hedgehog thing, I didn't actually finish what you asked me. No. Why do I love hedgehogs? Why? That was what I did. But the why was because during that process, I realized initially not many people had been studying them. Mm -hmm. And so there was a bit of a niche to fill. And then gradually it was the realization that there is a moment of connection you can get with hedgehogs, which is very difficult to get with any other wildlife. Mm. And it's not magic. It's not woo. It's just simply down to the absence of a fight or flight response. So hedgehog makes the, evolutionarily speaking, the, the sacrifice over time to, to get rid of insulating fur and uh, replace that with defensive spines. And in that process, it means it has to develop hibernation as a strategy because it can't cope with you know, the winters. Uh, but also what it does is it removes the need for most instances for it to run away. So when confronted with a threat, uh, uh, whether it's some lumbering radio tracking human or car, they'll frown and then they'll roll up into a ball. And, yeah. uh, and it's a very effective strategy. And uh, do you mind really weird tangents? No, you God, don't. Not okay, about good. hedgehogs. So, no. I, okay. Well, I was on the one show um, uh, a while back talking about hedgehogs, obviously, and I'd never met Rylan before, the guy who presents it, the one with yes, very white yeah, teeth. Yeah. Yeah, so, very and white I'd always teeth. Been, yeah. Well, he has got very he white has, teeth, doesn't he? Yeah, and I really don't. Very anyway, orange so, skin, very white teeth. Didn't I can't remember the skin? Anyway, point being is, I was like, um, I'm not. Um, as the listeners won't be able to tell, I'm not exactly one who is all for the kempt. In fact, I, I, I embrace unkempt. You're being modest, Hugh. You're, no, 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 truly, truly. This is, this is, um, I'm, uh, you don't know what's on the lower half. And um, so, and so I was on with Ryland and during the show he was saying, you know, so, so you know, hedgehogs, they just roll up into a ball, don't they? And I said, well, actually, the first thing a hedgehog does when it's frightened is it frowns. And the frown muscle on a hedgehog goes from above its um, mm. um, eyebrows, basically down to its tail. And as it frowns, it brings uh, the spines forward over its face and its prickles all come up. Uh, you can stroke a happy hedgehog, a frowning hedgehog. You can't because the prickles yeah. are all up. And I said, go on, you frown. And he looked at me and went, well, I can't frown. I've got Botox. <laughs> and at that moment, I was just like, now I get it. And he was just, so he was such a good communicator and so entertaining. Yeah, and it was yeah. just this, so point being is don't give hedgehogs Botox no, it because really it really impinges, yeah, <laughs> impinges their ability to, to frown and roll up into a ball. You're literally playing God if you do that and it will not no, go it well. No, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. completely. Uh, they're happy to embrace their maturity. I think I've just found the clip to trailer the show. <laughs> anyway, what I'm trying to say, Ryan, is don't give hedgehogs Botox. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Next question. <laughs> Right. So but my next question is going to be because I want I was going to ask this as a straight question, but then I thought and we will come on to their conservation later. But I was going to ask you, where can we find them? But I'm also going to say, where should we find them? Because those two questions are quite different in a way. So I, I would guess I'll just ask them both of you, where can we find hedgehogs and where should we be finding them? OK, so. Where can we find them? Mm. I will direct you to a, a fantastic resource. And we will get on to talking about the Hedgehog Street campaign later. Mm. But as part of the Hedgehog Street campaign, we have a thing called the Big Hedgehog Map. Um, which it does what it says on the yeah. tin, really. And uh, so you you plot sightings of hedgehogs, dead or alive, uh, by postcode. And this gives you an idea of where hedgehog clusters are. What it also does is give you an idea of where nice people are, uh, because obviously it's quite crude data. And uh, these data are, are sometimes um, referencing people who care about hedgehogs mm. rather than the hedgehogs. Um, hedgehogs. <laughs> so so there, there are parts of um, you know, Scotland which have probably got loads of hedgehogs, but yeah, there are very few people, and similarly with central Wales. Mm. Uh, and But there's a gap on the map. So that's where you can find them. I mean, where you will tend to find them is in suburbia mm -hmm. um, because they're 
preferred habitat is a sort of mosaic habitat in the natural world. If you were to, to go back pre-human or certainly pre-industrialized agriculture, yeah. the hedgehog's habitat preferences. Now, I'm going to give you, this is one of those things. I'll reach out to you with a question. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. So what sort of habitat do you reckon a hedgehog really, really likes? I'm just going to, I mean, there's, 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 I may be offering a clue in that one. Do you, do you think we I'm should open this a competition? With, this is, and I am plucking at straws with this. Um, I'm going to go... Yeah. Some hedge environment. Yeah, yeah, no, complete the hedgehog. Yeah. So, yeah, the name isn't an entire mystery, <laughs> but it is funny sometimes in school groups. And you go, so where do you get hedgehog lives? And they go, oh, I don't know, um, city. No, not a city. It's a hedge, hedgehog, hedge, hedge. Anyway, eventually they get it. So they're, but you know, hedges are, are anthropogenic. They're they're a man-made mm. feature. So you need to think about what is a hedge. And the hedgehog is actually a woodland edge specialist. So they're up there mm. with robins and other animals like that. They they have that preference for the area, which is sort of near a clearing. Um, so they would have inhabited sort of clearings within wild woods. They would have moved around. They, they can operate within broadleaf woodland quite well as long as there's food and there's there's leaf. Yeah. decent leaves for, for bedding and shelter. But their preference is that sort of hinterland. And so I was uh, so I was asked by um, Patrick Barkham from The Guardian. Mm. Some years back, he was interviewing me about hedgehogs, and he just he was so embarrassed. He said, look, you could just write it, but they've asked me to write it. So anyway, the question he asked me, he said, when do you think was peak hedgehog? Yeah, when oh, when were the a, most hedgehogs? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I... Well, I had, I'd, so I, I made stuff up because that's what you do, and then you test it if you can. Um, that's science. Uh, but um, I, uh, so, so I just came, well, I imagine that you know, in the, the pre-enclosures um, agriculture, there weren't that many hedgerows, and, but there wasn't such an intensive agriculture. But I imagine at the point at which, and I said, at the point at which John Clare was being driven mad by the enclosures, the hedgehogs were looking around themselves going, yippity <laughs> do and making hay. Um, Is that because uh, of the corridors? Literally, because they well, could spread. This, yeah, big, well, because they then could move through the landscape yeah, right, more effectively, yeah. we'd created a whole bunch of woodland edge habitat. Yeah. However, I then got a complaint from my mother oh, um, saying, no. why did you swear in the garden? Okay. Do you think I get a choice? I really, really did not think that Patrick Barkham was going to quote me precisely on that one. I mean, if it's something journalists are known to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that. It's so, not quote um, accurately. Yeah. So anyway, um, he put that bit in. Uh, so, so yeah, in terms of where we should find them, mm. we should find them in the hedgerows of a wonderful mosaic of farmland. Right. Lots of small fields with, with you know, thick hedgerows. Um, yet when you look at the distribution of hedgehogs on the big hedgehog map, when you look at the distribution of hedgehogs through the Hogwatch project we did years ago, um, you find that actually where you would expect to find them, which is roaming around the countryside of, of Devon and Somerset, you just don't. Mm. Um, but you'll find them in Devon towns and Cornish towns, but you'll find them in the countryside in East Anglia and in North Yorkshire. And so we have a, a bit of a disconnect between what we would assume is ideal hedgehog habitat and what hedgehogs actually prefer. Because you said they love suburban areas. Is that because there's just more people seeing them there? Or is this actual like hedgehog census trying to find them and not finding them in these areas? Or is it just with, with, with more populations in the suburban areas we're seeing more? Yeah, I mean, so observer bias is always a risk with these things. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, Carly Pettit did her PhD, her DPhil on hedgehogs at our University of Oxford. And part of the work she did was to collect a whole bunch of rescue hedgehogs took them out into the Oxfordshire countryside, released them, and they all took one look and went, sod that, and went back into the village. Right. So they made an active choice to leave a rural landscape and, and head go back to the into, suburbs. To, well, they, to go to the, the rural refugia, as they yes. referred to, back basically, a, a village. And 
when you then start to unpick why they're doing that, mm. farmed landscape is an ecological desert. So what do hedgehogs yeah. need? They need food. They need food. So if they're food, in an water, environment, shelter, yeah. yeah, food, water, shelter, and the potential for finding a mate. Um, and so if they are in an environment which lacks these things, um, then they're going to leave it. So I mean, she was looking at, at temperature differences. That's another measure of it. It's mm -hmm. like it's actually colder on yeah. You know, if you're at field level out in the middle of a field, it's colder than it is in somebody's garden next to to the house. Yeah. So you're using up less energy to keep yourself alive um, by moving to somewhere warmer. But it looks like one of the key elements is the issue of food. Um, there is also uh, uh, the element of security. Um, the increased population of badgers in the country creates a landscape of fear. So we right. know from radio tracking studies that, that um, badgers in a landscape uh, will restrict the ability of hedgehogs to move through that landscape. So they will tend towards built up areas because then they're away from, yeah, badgers tend not to become so close to them. Even I mean, um, Rosie Woodruff was doing some work on this a while back, looking at the way badgers moved uh, and in terms, in reference to, to their ability to potentially transmit uh, bovine tuberculosis. And she found that they rarely came very close to built up areas. Yeah. And I mean, obviously people in suburbia will see them in gardens, but on yeah, the but, big but on picture. On the larger scale, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, so what you've got is that the hedgehog's retreating to a, a, a refuge because um, badgers, you say, they create a landscape of fear. They outcompete hedgehogs for uh, the meagre, uh, mega mm. uh, um, um, invertebrate diet that's yeah. left. Uh, macroinvertebrate diets left, and um, but they will also predate hedgehogs. And, oh, that's what um, I was going to say. What's the beef there? Is that just because is that fear a pr predator fear? Uh, in part, yes. However, oh. I must caution. Uh, <laughs> so there is a reflex. You will find it on the the conservative member of parliament, rural constituency type mm -hmm. of knee jerk reaction, which is ah ah bastards, bastard badgers eating hedgehogs. Therefore, we must kill badgers to save yes. hedgehogs. Unfortunately, that falls into a clearly demarcated category of of ecological illiteracy. Yeah, you know, these things. You know, these are two species which have cohabited for for millennia. Yeah, what they have is uh, known as an asymmetric intraguild predatory relationship. And so, th th take notes because there will be questions at the end. Okay, um, <laughs> that's to the listeners, so, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no, and to you. <laughs> so, uh, so, so they are principally competitors for the same food. Right. So, so the, the main diet of, of both badgers and hedgehogs and macroinvertebrates are best understanding. Now, I, I, I stand to be corrected with this. You know, I mean, I'm, the whole point of science is that you're supposed to be. Our best understanding is that when the wider ecological setup is a bit degraded, mm -hmm. their relationship shifts from being one of competition for the same food resource to one of predation. Right, um, okay. and it's certainly not all badgers eat hedgehogs. I mean, I was radio tracking <laughs> them in not, Devon. Hashtag not all badgers, guys. <laughs> not all badgers, completely, absolutely. Um, and uh, I was radio tracking the hedgehogs in Devon, and um, there was a badger set on um, the farmland that I was was using. Never a problem. I'd see the badgers out, see the hedgehogs out. They just left each other alone. Mm. Then over a period of a week, five hedgehogs got eaten. Three of them were mine, two were wild ones. I, and then nothing ever happened again. And so my understanding was that was a, a passing badger which had learned how to eat hedgehogs. Yeah. But in that moment came one of the sort of great tragedies of, of my hedgehog work uh, as I, I pushed my way into the undergrowth and found a badger eating my little willy. Uh, which is is a real key reminder to name your hedgehog sensibly. So you've got so much editing on this, haven't you? I'm really sorry. I have, and my editor Oscar has. I and I would disagree. <laughs> I've got so much choice of what to use as the trailer. 
So anyway, point, point is the, um, the, the, the relationship is complicated. It's a complex ecological relationship. Hmm. And that there are people who knee-jerk into, therefore, excuse to kill badgers. And that's yeah, yeah. not what anybody in the sort of commonsensical ecological world is calling for. Yeah, exactly, because that's such a knee-jerk... I don't know. It's, it, for me, and I, I don't have to be careful with what I say. It's just, I think, find that just a stupid way to think, because, like you said, they're two animals that have coexisted for t- you know thousands, thousands of years. Of years. Yeah. yeah, and it's like it's these things happen. There are animals that, that they can be pockets of animals that learn how to predate a certain animal where other populations in other areas aren't doing that as much so you can't just go well look they do it here so let's kill them all it's like it just doesn't make well, it i just... mean you saw the hedgehog on on Springwatch probably yes, uh, yeah, doing yeah. shockingly bad work for our <laughs> pr department it was like do you really you did that on <laughs> you camera did... <laughs> you plonker i mean really just like... i saw it on crime watch the next week <laughs> yes. <well>, yeah <laughs> so that was it was a sky likeness wasn't it that yes, it was sky, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah but this is what i mean you know you you know from people looking we see these different behaviors pop out and like you said there can be a plethora of reasons why it could just be this population have decided to predate this uh due to lack of something else or they've learned how and it's you know these things happen right i mean look at look at animals like orcas I mean, they, they, every single pod's got a different way of predating. So it's, you know, they, they pick up different things. But um, no, that's, I, I, I didn't ever think that badgers would eat hedgehogs. They can't be that much of a nice, surely. Fantastic food. And badger claws are longer than hedgehog spines. So a hedgehog uh, rolls up into a ball. Um, no the problem. badger simply opens it. <laughs> and badgers are really, really strong. And it's, yeah. um, and in terms of a food, my um, my first book, A Prickly Affair, uh, actually garnered a, a one-star review on Amazon from somebody who found my inclusion of a recipe for hedgehog spaghetti carbonara um, as to be inappropriate, <laughs> failing to observe the humour with which it was written, but also the fact that it was only using roadkill hedgehogs, for goodness sake. For goodness um, sake. <laughs> it was cooked by a badger. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> Anyway, yes, sorry. Uh, you probably have some questions. I'm well, really I was going to say, my next question was going to be, what do they eat? But we kind of covered that. But what are the... So we said about the invertebrates. What do we mean? What what kind of invertebrates are they going after? Well, if you look across the entire year, the hedgehog's year, the most consistent um, component will be earthworms. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, dry spells that we've had are really difficult for hedgehogs yeah. because um, uh, you know, a lot of the earthworms and other invertebrates will uh, hide themselves away to, to conserve moisture. Um, badgers in these situations can dig much more effective than hedgehogs. Hedgehogs largely scratch the surface. Mm. So, so supplementary feeding and supplementary water in particular has been absolutely crucial. Um, so they're carnivores. Hedgehogs are carnivores. Um, badgers have an advantage of being much more omnivorous, so they can stock up mm. on maize. A lot of the farmers who get upset about the presence of badgers are actually busily farming badgers because they, <laughs> they grow so much maize because of the um, uh, the subsidies they get for that. So going back to, to what hedgehogs eat, yes, I mean, they, they will eat beetles. They will, I mean, beetles are a big part of their diet when they can find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, worms will eat mollusks. They'll eat uh, the larvae of various insects. But yeah, the macroinvertebrates, the bigger insects, are, are what they're after. Right. Um, which is why, in terms of assisting hedgehogs it can seem rather counterintuitive but you go and plant your garden with a whole bunch of pollinator attracting uh flowers because what that does is attract in insects which pollinate them but then the insects lay eggs which become the grubs which the hedgehogs eat so it's all yeah so it's not like that hedgehogs are leaping up into the air trying to catch a a passing (laughs) although we would love to Um, see that (laughs) oh no completely i have i have some weird dreams it's um That would be epic, epic. Um, and what do they kind of, What's what's their lifestyle like? Are these are the hedgehogs burrowing animals? Because you said they hibernate. So when they hibernate, where are they going? 
Well, the hedgehogs build a hibernaculum, right. um, which is a fancy word for a hibernating home. And uh, yeah. the hibernaculum, is, I mean, so they have three different sorts of nesting uh, uh, behaviours. Uh, um, uh, there's the run-of-the-mill day nest. So, so, so um, about the time that you've got Farming Today starting on Radio 4, I, I measure these things by Radio 4, uh, you know, the hedgehog is, is, is pulling together a few leaves, pushing itself under some vegetation. Um, the day nests can be really quite a trivial affair. I mean, they, they can. It can just be pushing themselves into uh, the middle of some pampas grass or right. something. You know, whatever. It can be something as little as that. Mm. Then there are the breeding nests, which tend to be much more substantial, obviously, because you've got more than just the one hedgehog in there. And then the really important hibernation nest. And this is actually one of the things which which sort of marks the distribution of hedgehogs in the country, is where can a hedgehog actually create a decent and safe hibernaculum? And so above the tree line. It's very difficult because the trees, leaves of trees are, are the crucial component of the dried vegetation, which is right. used to create the insulating layers inside the hibernaculum. They'll use grass as well to some extent, and but it's, it, it, that's one of, the, one of the key determinants of it. Areas which regularly flood are also very, very difficult for hedgehogs to be able to cope with hibernation in because, I mean, remember a few years back when the Somerset Levels was underwater for, for weeks and weeks and yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there will be no hedgehogs left after that in that area. They they will have drowned. There's no, drowned there's no way out of that. Right. So you know that this. So they need to. So that's their sort of need in terms of that. So they don't dig, but what they do is they accumulate dried uh, vegetation. Uh, they will pick up leaves and pull grass along in their mouths, and they'll drag them into some sort of structure. So whether that is the base of a hedge, you see, we got the thing again. We got that. Um, but bramble patches, mm -hmm. or even your hedgehog home, which you've built in your garden yes. or you've bought, and they need a structure to pile in these leaves and then they go inside and then they rotate and they go round and around and around and the the spines on the back of the hedgehog comb the dead vegetation into a sort of laminate structure mm. uh, which creates a really effective insulating layer and um, it's dr pat morris uh, was the the person who sort of looked at this and was showing that it's a really crucial job that this does. Ob the obvious thing is it's got to keep the hedgehogs from getting too cold. Yeah, it's got to insulate them from the cold. Yeah. But also it's got to insulate them from the heat because hedgehogs go into hibernation surviving on two different sorts of fat. So there's the white fat, which is the general ticking over fat, mm -hmm. the stuff that keeps them going. And then there's a smaller amount of brown fat around the neck and the shoulders which is full of mitochondria. This is the starter mode. It's stuff kicks the hedgehog's body into life when it is stimulated by a change in the climate. So when the temperature rises, the hedgehog's stimulated to come out of hibernation because the hedgehog goes into hibernation because that's food, mm -hmm. macroinvertebrates, goes away. And they've got no insulating fur, so they've got nothing to eat. They've got no insulation, so they shut their metabolism down by 98%. So it's about 2% of their metabolism ticking over. Then you get a stimulus of the heat. The hedgehog begins to wake up into, um, out of hibernation, stimulated by the brown fat reserves. And if this is triggered by just a couple of, uh, one warm day. Yes, yeah, an abnormal. Um, abnormal. Then, then they're using up this essential brown fat reserve. Right. And so it ends up with them coming out of hibernation at the end of the winter, uh, maybe very, very depleted. So the insulation keeps them not too warm as well. So it actually provides some protection right. from just an occasional warm day. Wow, that's quite complex for a little hedgehog making it. Well, I mean, then again, how, you know, how much of a sort of conscious effort goes into these things. You know, they're evolved to do amazing things. You know, I still haven't quite worked out how a monarch butterfly, which has uh, never actually made the entire journey down the Americas, uh, can do that. Yeah, mm. I, it, 
yeah, there, there is there is there is wonder out there. Yeah, that's yeah. why we do what we do. Because yeah, exactly. There is wonder, wonder out there. Out there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and what about like we? Because I mean, baby, I've seen baby hedgehogs before, and they are the most adorable little hedgehogs. Um, or hoglets. Hoglets will do. Hoglets. <laughs> What what else is there? There's got to be more. I don't know. I mean, it just just makes stuff up. People do all the time. Brilliant. It's fun. Um, <laughs> you can see my brain work. <laughs> yeah, don't I'll, because you'll no. go somewhere bad. Yeah, I'll, I'll in a minute. I'll sh- I'll shout it out in four in the morning. I'll just wake up and shout <laughs> something. Um, how many babies do they have at a time? Is it are they having small small numbers? Between four and six. Between four and standard. Okay, here's a thing to to bear in mind that hedgehog baby hedgehogs mm-hmm. are born with spines. Really? Ouch. Yeah, I know. You see, exactly. Um, so I, I do a lot of Women's Institute talks, and this is always a moment which causes a moment of concern. Um, so, but so, they, but you've got to think about this. So the hedgehog, the baby hedgehog spines are relatively soft, but they mm. provide a bit of protection. Now, if a hedgehog was born with no spines and it had to grow those spines, that would take quite a long time. Yeah. What a hedgehog is born with is the spines are present, but they are, have a fluid-filled sac. They're, well, their outer skin is fluid-filled. Okay. Ooh. So that the so they're quite edemic. That's the word, technical term yeah. for it. And so what this means, the spines are there, but the hedgehog pops out without, you know, too much unpleasantness. And then the fluid is absorbed and the spines appear far quicker than if they were oh, growing. Right. So this means that they've got a degree of protection much sooner. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, you see, hedgehogs are full of interesting things. <laughs> it's, interest. it's also one of those things. That, you know when you've not considered how something ha- happens or takes place and then you learn exactly how it happens? Your mind's like kind of, wow, I've never thought about this before. Oh, I had this. I was with my mother. I'd taken my kids and me to Chester Zoo. Mm-hmm. They've got a big free-flying bat enclosure there. Loads of fruit bats in there. Yeah, yeah. Then I watched one of the fruit bats you know, dangling as bats do. Then it reached up and hooked its claw, front claws up onto the branch, dangled the other way around and peed. <laughs> and at that moment, I was going, I had never asked the question. No. How do bats pee in a roost? Because otherwise they're just peeing all over themselves. Yeah, exactly. And it was like, oh my goodness, I'd never... And that's the thing which is really frustrating as somebody who comes from a sort of, you know, background of you know, trying to be thoughtful and thinking, is yeah. if you've never actually thought of the blinking question, how can you ever get anywhere? I also love I love things like that with bats doing that because I d- I'm not I'm not going to like humanize it but I also love that level of thought of I can't do it like that so they know that if they do it upside down something they they will be in you know, something bad will happen <laughs> Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I think it, I using the word it. no yeah. is is applying maybe slightly a, an edge too much in in their um, you know, the consciousness. Uh, yes, yeah. Um, you know, there, but there is, you know, over time, you you learn behaviours which mm. which lead to a longer and happier life. Yeah. Anyway, point is, full of wonder. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. Let's talk about hedgehog conservation because it's. I, mean, I don't think anyone listening to this show is going to be not in the know of that hedgehogs are not doing great or have had masses of pressure. But what are the actual reasons for the population declines over the years? 
So we, we I, I work um, as a spokesperson for the British Hedgehog Preservation Society, and uh, we work with the People's Trust for Endangered Species, mm-hmm. and we collaborate to run the Hedgehog Street campaign. And um, every few years, we do the State of Britain's Hedgehogs Report. I have to say, many years back, there was there was the um, uh, the BAP species, the Biodiversity Action uh, Plan mm. uh, species of concern, and the hedgehog was given sort of BAP species status, and it was like, this is great. That means people are going to do things about hedgehogs. And then there was this moment of realization, going, oh, that's us. We're going to have yeah. to do things about it. It was like <laughs> nobody else is doing it. It's just going to be us. <laughs> I joked about it at the beginning with, you know, why did you count the hedgehogs um, to find out how many there are. Mm. So we, we do the State and Prince Hedgehogs report to just try and pull together uh, an understanding of all the different surveys which are ongoing. So the People's Trust and Hedgehog Street, a whole bunch of different surveys. We've got BTO surveys. We've got the RSPB surveys. And um, we get you know, far cleverer people than me to look at the numbers uh, and see what they come out with. And uh, so we know that so... The most recent one, which came out earlier this year, um, we've got data going back to the year 2000. So between year 2000 and 2021, Mm -hmm. we know that there has been a 25% decline in urban hedgehog populations. But that's actually quite good because that's leveled off over the last six or seven years, Mm -hmm. which is great. Uh, But in rural areas, the population is down between 30 and 75%. Wow. And it's in freefall. So um, that's, that's, uh, um, yeah, that's the, the sort of big shock there. Was it two years ago now, the hedgehog was added as vulnerable to extinction as a red list species? Mm-hmm. Previously, it's not been on the red list, not because of, of sort of a lack of problem, but because there simply hasn't been good enough quality data. Yeah. But the data has become more robust over time. And so now we've got that thing. So we've got hedgehog numbers are in dramatic decline. Now, what does this mean over a bigger period? I, uh, as I mentioned, I do these WI talks, and I've been doing them for many, many years. And um, and it's not just them; it's the gardening clubs and the University of the Third Age, and yeah, anybody. I mean, I I will speak to basically anybody about hedgehogs because it's my life's mission to try and and cause uh, a revolution via hedgehogs. But we'll come on to that. <laughs> And uh, so, so, but it's been fascinating talking to people who are much older than myself um, and looking back in time to, to what they remember as children. So oh, we had a Mammal Society report in the mid-90s, which suggested a 66% decline since the end of the Second World War. I think that was roughly about that. Mm-hmm. And so combine that with the figures we've been getting from the State of Britain's Hedgehogs report and combining it with the carefully collected ANIC data, anecdotal data mm-hmm. uh, from the WIs. You know, that is fascinating because then you start saying, well, what do you remember when you were a child? Before the show, I sat here, had a cup of tea and was like, when was the last time you saw a hedgehog? Now, obviously, I live in London, although I'm near Hampstead Heath, which has a good hedgehog population. I was like, when was the last time you did? I went, oh, it was when you were 19. I was like, no, wait, that wasn't in England. Right, when, mm. when was the last time in England? And it would have been before, like, I'm talking 20 years ago and I was yeah. in, my, in about nine or 10. So I live, I live in East Oxford, and behind me there is a, a park. The fence around the park is big mm. enough to let hedgehogs in and out of the gardens. But the park is full of dogs every day, so hedgehogs won't over day in the gar in the park. Mm. Our gardens, however, this this estate is full of of hippies and artists and writers, <laughs> and um, so the fences aren't very well maintained. So it's great, lots of connectivity. I have seen no hedgehogs in my garden in the last ten years. I've lived in this Whoa. estate for twenty five years, and you used, now, to, you used are, to see them in the garden, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I have um, at my shed, I've got my uh, laptop, I've got my hard drives. And every night I come down and I collect up the valuable bits 
and I take him into the house and um, I always take a torch with me, not because I, I worry about my uh, beautifully crafted recycled brick herringbone path I made, but because I'm wanting to increase the chances of bumping into a hedgehog. Yeah. So I'm looking. I know, know what they sound like very distinctly. Now, um, my son, in fact, um, only a couple of weeks ago, he phoned me and said, there's a hedgehog outside a, a number on the street. And I said, OK, I'm on my way and hung up and ran inside, grabbed a cardboard box, grabbed a towel just because it's you can pick the hedgehog up, put it into the box and then it'll be in a towel wrapped up darker. Yeah. It'll be less and, and race. And I could see him walking off and I go, well, stay with it. I was shouting. And he looked at me like I was mad. And I got to where he'd said. And it was a dead hedgehog. Now, what he had said was that it was dead, but he'd said that after I'd hung up to run to go and get him. So anyway, point being, it was a dead young hedgehog. Right. But it means that there has been at least a litter within our estate. Yeah. Um, so they're around. It's just I've not seen, them, not seen in them in my garden. So anyway, back to the anecdata. Sorry. Um, no, no. I reckon, and it's, it's very much unpublishable because it's not got nothing to back it up other than a few conversations. Yeah. But it's not unreasonable to suggest hedgehog numbers in the UK are down between 90 and 95% since the end of the Second World War. That's mad. That is mad. And you add to this, is this is the nation's favourite animal. Favourite wild animal. So why, every why, vote, every why, 90, why are we talking 90% decline, 95%? What, what's happened there? So we've got, I mean, the Bottom line of it is um, uh, industrial industrial capitalism is the enemy of these things. Yeah, yeah. we've got uh, you know we we have developed a landscape which uh, removes uh, wildlife habitat and removes um, um, wildlife. It removes the insect life. It removes uh, potential food for so many different animals. If you look at the population decline of you know, farmland birds, of, of farmland bats, of, of um, uh, amphibians and reptiles as well. You know, it, the declines you get out there, um, certainly in recorded history, so in the last of 20, 30 years or so, you know, the BTO data shows a good 60 or so percent decline mm. in that time for, for farmland birds. And, and these are the sorts of figures which are going on all, all across the, the taxa. But the reason I stick with the hedgehog is because people they they take they are taken up short by these numbers. They suddenly go, wait a minute, this is this is the yeah, the animal we love. We know we grew up with this animal. Mm -hmm. We remember seeing this animal because the thing is, you see a hedgehog and it sticks in your mind. But it's the yeah, only it really does, animal yeah. we've got. So whilst I'm I'm care passionately about hedgehogs, what I really care about is what the hedgehog is telling us about the wider environment. Mm. So so that this is this is the warning sign. This is the indication that stuff which you care less about is suffering as well. And, and obviously connectivity in the landscape, you know, it's all being fragmented into smaller and smaller pieces, apart from the absence of food and the deaths on the roads and the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was it. I, I was going to ask you that question. And I, you know, I, didn't, I don't know why I didn't put it in, but I was going to say to you, is the hedgehog an animal that is an indicator that other problems are at foot as well? So it's interesting I mean, it's a, that you naturally answered it as yeah. well. It's a cliche that it's a canary. Um, yeah, yeah, moving back to birds again. But it's a. Um, it, but it is it, because yeah. you know, we are. So think of um, I don't know a, a, a dormouse or, or mm. great crested newt, something like that. They've got a very specific habitat requirement, and so if you don't have you know, coppice hazel woodlands, and if you don't have you know, ponds or whatever, you you don't have your species. The hedgehog is a generalist. What we're seeing here is it can cope with an amazing a range of different habitats. You know, your Erinaceus europaeus, the Western European hedgehog, is found in Norway and it's found in Spain and it's found in Britain and France and Germany, and you know, so it's got a wide it's range a wide of habitats range, it can yeah. cope with. It can cope with Norway. You know, it is like it, it can do this sort of thing. Yeah. And um, so if it has this capacity to cope with this wide range of habitats, that's a real issue of concern 
that it's not when you see well. it failing mm. to be able to cope with with actually a very temperate uh, uh, condition here. So what can people do about this then? Because like, I mean, I mean, also, that's a cliche question to ask, because but I, I you know, people hear this stuff and I know especially this audience will be going, well, what the <laughs> f- I don't want that to happen. So what can they be doing and what can they do practically to actually make a difference? I mean, there are two different approaches on this. There's the practical mm-hmm. and then there's the political. And, and the practical is you do stuff in the patch that you can influence, right. which if you're lucky enough to have a garden, is in your garden. So this is the reason why Hedgehog Street, the campaign, has focused on suburbia, because mm. um, if we want people to deal with the big picture of stuff out in the rural landscape, we're asking people to be changing um, uh, the transport infrastructure policy. We're asking them to change the way food is grown, uh, you know, the entire agricultural policy, yeah. um, development policy, all of these things. Whereas if you're trying to have an impact at a suburban level, you're looking at getting people to uh, the basics, as you said before, you know, food and shelter and water yeah. and access. And so we can ask people to make their gardens hedgehog friendly, which is straightforward, be wildlife yeah. friendly. And, uh, and again, your audience will be very familiar with something to do with that. Yeah, don't be an idiot and make <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, don't be an idiot and get rid of the cult of tidiness, which is yeah. something I wrote about because it's like that's just the, 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 the end of the world. Yeah. And uh, so we can get people to do that. And then, they, then the hard bit talk to your neighbors, make a hole in the fence 13 centimeters square. That's the essence of the Hedgehog Street campaign. But to you know, change the bigger landscape is much, much harder. So that's the practical. So we got that. But then there's the political. And I use the hedgehog. Like, I, 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 I do a stand-up routine. I did it with Robin Inson, if you know, does the ro- yes, yeah, yeah. monkey cage. Yeah. So. Um, he does a thing called Nine Lessons and Carols for, uh, it was godless people, now it's curious people. Um, and so I go and I do, do a sort of eight-minute uh, um, stand-up sort of routine about hedgehogs. And the last one I did ended with, well, I just the, 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 it was based around the unexplored revolutionary potential of hedgehogs. Um, and it went through a whole bunch of ancient Greek philosophers and German philosophers and and uh, Ukrainian anti-tank uh, defences, all sorts of different hedgehogs. Um, there was some rude stuff in there too. Of course. Oh my God, there was some rude stuff in there. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it was yes, directly from ancient Greek philosophers through to the world of furries and anyway. Um, and uh, so so we had um, so going through all this. But the point of this is that actually, if we want to get a change made. It's great having uh, Greta and uh, Extinction Rebellion, Just a Boil, or whatever. It's really great to have that sort of motivation, that starter motor for this whole thing. But actually, the real change is going to come when we have got the Women's Institute chanting along to Jerusalem as they march down Whitehall, uh, uh, getting ready to storm Parliament. You know, we need that audience, and we need, we need that power mm. behind it, that power to actually get stuff done. And so I spend so much of my time talking to this sort of audience because you're just sowing seeds. You know, they book me in to talk about hedgehogs. Okay, but what they don't know is they're booking a Trojan hedgehog. Okay, see? Um, so <laughs> oh I, my I, God, I, you're I, operated by a hedgehog. I, I, I snuffle my way in to the you know, into, into the village hall. next to him as he sits. I, I, I can't do this sort of thing. And so the Trojan hedgehog. And so they, yeah, they book me to talk about hedgehogs because everyone loves hedgehogs. But what I talk about is... Uh, transport infrastructure policy. I talk about the national planning policy framework. Mm. I talk about you know the way that we grow our food. And I talk about the absolute need to dismantle industrial capitalism. And it's a fun show. We have a great time. People laugh a lot, sometimes to the point that I worry that I'm going to have to bring out my CPR skills. But it's a, yeah, it's a fun show. But we're dropping little seeds along yeah, the way. Yeah. And you know, when has a WI talk in the middle of the shires had somebody stand up in front of them and say, well, actually, you love hedgehogs. 
the only way we're really going to turn this around is by completely restructuring society. Um, and you know, so it, but you do it in such <laughs> off a you way, go. <laughs> off you go, complete. Well, and who is going to do that? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it is going to require those wonderful people of the WI, of the University of the Third Age, these people who've got a bit of time because they're retired, uh, to be able to start to think, to be able to start to act. Mm, absolutely. And, and you know, so I am a firm believer in reaching out to all sorts of groups of people. I, I was doing a talk at the Green Gathering um, in Chepstow uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, it's great fun. But I'm very much talking to the converted. I'm talking to the people who've already been arrested and gone to prison for doing this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. What I want is, you know, Mrs. Miggins, who makes a fantastic Victoria sponge, to also go, you know what, <laughs> it, and go and sit in front of the road, uh, sit in front of yeah. Parliament. Well, that cross is going in a different box. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that absolutely. I yeah. mean, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're totally right. It's, I, I think it's. It's something you you learn, especially being doing as much communication as you're doing, and many other science and nature communicators out there will know that is, you can talk to the converted happily and be comfortable for ages. But the chats we really want to be having, and not always debates, like you said, it's not always about debating the other side. It's about just talking with, because it's planting those seeds, as you say, and going. Actually, if we just get people to try and think. A bit differently, and the same with ourselves. Sometimes, if we think a bit differently, we might realise, like you said, you don't re don't realise something until you think of that question, and then you start learning. But also, so. I just you were saying about talking, mm. but also these are opportunities to listen. So yeah, yeah. it's sometimes the questions which come back to you mm. um, are, are quite revelatory. I mean, in terms of you know, the people talking about the the absence of seeing hedgehogs, talking about their childhood, for example, yeah. or just talking about the complications of living within a small community and trying to make connections between different people's gardens giving people the opportunity to talk too yeah is it helps it helps sort of fertilize the seeds that you've sown mm -hmm. it gives them a much much more in uh, sort of uh engagement with it because mm. suddenly they're a part of it yeah yeah absolutely i, to I totally agree it's um it's just yeah it's so basic actually the more i think about it I mean, it's just a, it's just chatting isn't it it's just a conversation that so many yeah i like it it's kind of what you do it's literally what i do <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you worked out what you do now. Oh I mean, how long have you been doing this? Yes, it's <laughs> There's your revelation moment. <laughs> um, the last question of the podcast, Hugh, is this again. This used to be a question that I've changed because I got all my answers. I feel like we filled the pot. So you've got a new one. Is If you could tell someone something about the natural world or advise them to try something within the natural world, what would you, what would you say? Oh, um, I'd say go and jump in a river and avoid the poo. <laughs> um, Unless right you're in now. the south of England. Um, well, no, I, mean, so I, I, I live in I say, I live in Oxford. I've got the Thames close by. Mm. Um, I love swimming in the river. I was down in Dartmoor, go and jump in the River Dart. And I love swimming in the sea. I mm. love getting into water. And yeah, it's not very hedgehog related, but it is deeply related to the way that we treat our natural world. Mm. And that if we are going to allow you know, rampant capitalism to destroy the natural world as absolutely blatantly as this. Yeah, real uh, there is no the way, yeah, there is absolutely no way we're going to be able to cope with and act upon the sort of the subtler things such as climate change. It is yeah. a subtler thing. You've got a bunch of jobbies floating past you while you're trying to go for a swim in the river. You go, we see a problem here. Yeah. You get small fluctuations in temperature yeah. and it could be, or you've got some absolute mindless oil company shill telling you that, oh, it's a debate still going on. Um, you, it, that is slightly subtler. So once we make 
a decision to say, no, we're not having it with something which is blatant and literally in your face if yeah. you're trying to go for a swim, then there is a chance that maybe you'll begin to start you know, piecing things together. It's, uh, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to do. Yeah. And you get to see kingfishers and you get to see amazing wildlife. I, I swam across the Thames in Dorchester and I was swimming in the Thames and I noticed this movement and I went up to it and it was a grass snake. Oh, wow. And it was swimming across the river and there was a boat coming. I thought, oh, well, I'm not having that boat mashed. <laughs> so I was kind of swimming very much sort of um, you know, granny style and you know, head very much yeah. out of the water. So, hi, I'm here. And swam beside this grass snake yeah. across the river. And actually, that was one of my... Yeah, that wasn't in the last seven days. Otherwise, that probably would have that been would, up that there. That sort of percent would have been in there. Uh, so, so yes. I mean, it's 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 not hedgehog related, but no, it's refreshing. By immersing it's, yourself yeah. into it, it's a real, real clear indication that if we can't do the absolutely fundamental basics of yeah, for goodness sake, the Victorians put in some sewers and then a bunch of lazy fat cat greedy <laughs> wits. Uh, sorry, um, Oscar. Um, <laughs> just, just. Just milked the money cow for as much as they could. And then, oh my gosh, the poo's everywhere. Yeah. Idiots. Absolutely. And I will say something as well on the positive side of swimming. It's putting yourself in a completely different environment. You're, you're totally, it's I'm not, I'm not going to say it's not where we're meant to be, but also it is that part of, oh, I'm out, out of my depth, literally. Or this is amazing. I'm completely seeing the landscape at a different level or in a different environment. I, that's why I love wild swimming. It's just great. I absolutely love yeah. it. Seeing it so swimming new. along, I used to take my, um, she's grown up. Now, I hate this. Kids, they, they used to be little and then they get all mature. But I used to pick her, my odd, one of my odd daughters. I have, I have a bunch of odd daughters. I'm an atheist, kind of a god daughter. And uh, so my odd daughter, Naya, and I would uh, pop by her, her mum's and pick up a swimming kit and go and pick her up from primary school. And then we'd go down to the river and go for a swim. And she'd put her goggles on and go swimming, swimming. And i say, look, sometimes keep your head up. And um, it's one of those moments because with a kingfisher, you'll often hear it and you won't actually know you've heard it, but you'll suddenly go, oh, kingfishers, they might be around. And then suddenly one flies by and it's yeah. because the peep, 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 peep has happened, but you didn't really consciously get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And so I, and I, I said, you know, why not take your goggles off? Have a look around. There might be a kingfisher. And then she put her head back down and the kingfisher flew just in front of my face. And it was just like, oh my goodness. So, yeah. So these moments of just, yeah, yeah. yeah it is, it is a, a place again, oh, I use that word again, wonder. It's a place filled with the potential it really for wonder. Is, yeah. Um, as long as you can avoid the jobbies. Avoid the jobbies at all costs. <laughs> um, Hugh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to chat with you um, about your passion and about an animal, like you said, this nation's favourite animal, right? You know, we scream about it. It's on every kid's book cover or the item of clothing or we see everything about it. And it's 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 amazing hey, to Harry's. exactly it's it's <laughs> <laughs> it's been lovely to chat about it with you. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure, Ryan. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee 
Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.